Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself are a spiritual refugee, we're especially glad you're listening. Hey, church. I'm Katie. My pronouns are she, her. I'm the lead evangelist here at Galileo Church, and I'm really, really glad to see all of you and to imagine all of you out there. We are at the end of our worship series for the season of Lent. There's one more week of Lent to go, but by next week we will have gone full throttle into Holy Week. And so we're finishing up tonight with one last reading from the prophet Jeremiah for this series called Gird Up Your Loins When All the News is Bad News. You probably know that it's a feature of most of the prophetic literature in the Bible that once God's wrath has been fully explicated, there is a description of the extension of God's mercy and a promise of the restoration of relationship, and that is the point at which we've arrived tonight in Jeremiah 31. I just want to say that in this text, it's a little bit confusing in that God has nicknames for God's people. They were previously called Israel, that nation-state split into two during a civil war so that Israel and Judah were separated, Judah being the remnant that remained after Israel's conquering by Assyria. And the remnant now goes by several nicknames. They can be called Jacob, they can be called Ephraim, and the capital city Jerusalem, having faced its ruin and destruction, can now be called Zion. Jeremiah 31. At that time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall take your tambourines and go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when sentinels will call in the hill country of Ephraim. Come, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, save, O Lord, your people, the remnant of Israel. See, I am going to bring them from the land of the north and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, those with child and those in labor together. A great company, they shall return here. With weeping, they shall come. And with consolations, I will lead them back. I will let them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I have become a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. 
Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, the one who scattered Israel will gather him and will keep him as a shepherd, a flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall become like a watered garden, and they shall never languish again. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will give the priests their fill of fatness, and, to my, and my people shall be satisfied with my bounty, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. A covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. And I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. With apologies to those of you who have heard this before, but it bears repeating for those who have not. I have had three marriages. They have all been with the same person. The first one was a romance filled with adventure. We defied our families of origin together. We left home for graduate school together. We scrounged on the curb for furniture to fill several terrible apartments. We used all the change we could dig out of our car cushions to buy a Christmas tree one year, which was actually the skinny top of a tree the lot had cut off of a real tree they were selling to a customer with real money. We found work. We decided to have kids. We learned how to cook not necessarily in that order. The second marriage was a drama teetering toward tragedy. All the things we thought we knew for sure came undone. All the promises we had made were called into question. All the hardship of that first marriage without romance to buffer it crashed over us like a tsunami. We sputtered and sank and nearly drowned. The third one is the one on the other side of the second one for anybody lucky and stubborn enough to make it through. 
It's not a rebound to the first marriage. It's something altogether different when new promises deepen the old ones, where forgiveness is your food, where sturdy, steadfast love is the new romance. The second marriage is not forgotten, but redeemed somehow, because it has resolved into this new forever commitment now that we know how long that might actually be. I'm telling you all this because in Jeremiah 31, the prophet renders a promise for his people's future with God, and he uses the metaphor of marriage to do it. When God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, I have continued my faithfulness to you, in verse 3, it's reminiscent of wedding vows a recollection of God's promise to love, cherish, and honor God's people for richer and for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do they part. When God calls the people, O virgin Israel, in verse 4, it's a remembrance of their earliest days together, that first marriage filled with innocence and light. And by the end of chapter 31, God says it's time for a new covenant, a new wedding with new vows for the new marriage between God and God's people. It will not be like the first covenant when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, God says, a sweet memory of the shy hand-holding of newlyweds in verse 32, followed closely by a plain reference to that painful second marriage, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband says the Lord. But in place of the prior covenant, the prophet says, in place of the former marriages, Jeremiah says, God is now proposing a new covenant for a new relationship. This time around, God promises the bliss of forgiving and forgetting. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more, verse 32. And God promises to be more accessible this time around. No longer shall they say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest. These new vows, this new marriage, will be deeper than the first, more secure than the second. This is the future of God's imagining for God and God's people together. The book of Jeremiah offers several such forecasts for the restoration of relationship between Israel and Israel's God, most all of them collected in one section of the book of Jeremiah called the Book of Consolations. In chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33, just four chapters out of over 50 long ones, the prophet paints a promise of post-exilic abundant life. In the section that we read from chapter 31 in the book of Consolations, we got a good sampling of Jeremiah's consoling vision. In a war-torn countryside, homes and infrastructure will be rebuilt. Fields and vineyards ruined by years of inattention will be replowed and replanted. Flocks and herds will procreate and proliferate. The economy will turn and the people will prosper. 
And from within their prosperous, protected future, God's people will learn again how to dance. Jeremiah mentions it multiple times, that they're going to have to find the tambourines that have long been in storage, warm up their stiff joints, and ready themselves to engage the dance of the merrymakers, verse 4. Everyone, young and old, will celebrate with their whole bodies, rejoicing in the dance, verse 13. And in this life of radiant restoration, God's people will find their worship brought back to life as well. Let us reconvene with our God in Zion, the announcement will read, and everyone will understand what this means. The Jerusalem temple, once destroyed by violence, will be ready to welcome the dancers and singers, the music of praise and thanksgiving, a thrilling reunion of the separated second marriage spouses is in the works. What comes next, the prophet says, will be better than it ever was before. Now, for Jeremiah's original audience, the language of these promises was not metaphorical. As their villages and homes were trampled by conquering armies, as their families were torn apart by violence and wartime impoverishment, as they suffered the real losses of land and livelihood, and yes, the real losses of life, conscripted soldiers defeated in bloody battle, civilians counted callously as collateral damage. These people longed for a short-term future of shalom, a soon-coming fulfillment of God's promise to just give them their lives back. But the truth is, within the biblical history, Israel would never again enjoy the sovereignty of its former borders. The temple would be partially rebuilt, but Jerusalem's scars would always show through the new construction. The people, the priesthood, the worship, the dancing, all would be muted and pale, especially in comparison to the promised radiance of Jeremiah's prophecy. When Jesus then spoke of the new covenant in my blood, at his last Passover meal with his friends, as we read earlier in Luke 22. He was picking up that language of new covenant from Jeremiah and his prophetic colleagues, calling to mind promises made generations before to his ancestors in faith. Jesus' friends would have known this language, the metaphor of marriage and its evolution over a long life together. They would have heard it from Jeremiah the same as we have, read out in a religious service, offered and re-offered as proof of God's steadfast love enduring forever. And maybe they'd have wondered as we do, how promises can constitute proof, or how long we are meant to wait for fulfillment of what's been pledged time and again, or what faithfulness even looks like while faithful people still suffer, while all the news is still bad news and has been for so long. 
or how God imagines we can still dance or even remember the tune after all this time. And maybe they would remember, as we do, that the fall of Israel to Assyria and then Judah to Babylon, the loss of Jerusalem and national identity and privileged status as God's chosen darling, these were not only meta-tragedies on a geopolitical scale, they were human catastrophes on the ground. At the level of parents losing children, lovers torn apart, families ripped from their homes, persons enslaved by enemy, marched in chains to a land not their own, the soil of their own fields and pastures watered with the blood of unburied beloveds. Real human losses, trauma for each and all, generations worth, passed down in DNA, altered by shock and suffering. No eventual restoration of temple and city wall, flock and field, would mitigate that pain. Through the prophet, God assures Jeremiah's hearers that God is aware of their collective grief. With weeping they will come, God says in verse 9, and with consolations I shall lead them back. I will turn their mourning into joy, God says, verse 13, and I will comfort them and give them gladness for their sorrow, thus says the Lord. So, church, we arrive again at a place we often find ourselves when we take seriously the testimony of our ancestors in faith concerning the nature and character of God's own self. It's a conflicted place where our hearts are torn. We can take the terms of Jeremiah's prophecy at face value, a restoration of place and economy and religious practice, a homecoming celebration that is meant to unwind the clock, erase the pain, and invite dancing, the embodiment of joy and gratitude. If this is what's meant, then we fear that God is small-minded and shallow that God is a romantic who fancies a return to that first marriage where suffering is forgotten, where new gifts make up for the old ones we've lost, which any of us could tell God is seriously not going to happen, seriously not even what we want anymore. Or, and this is harder maybe, but better, we can let Jeremiah's words lift us beyond the specificity of Israel's restoration to their land so that we can see God's plan for the redemption of all things, all people, the repair of all the ruined land, all the fragmented families. We can walk into that promise carrying our grief, our mourning, our sorrows, trusting that God stands ready to receive those. We can imagine handing God our broken hearts and God's tender touch for the healing of our deepest hurts. In between the two readings, the 
disappointing literal one and the meta vision for the cosmos sits Jesus with his wine and his bread, inviting his friends to think again one more time about a new covenant with God. It's a cosmic covenant. Yes, Jesus' insistence on God's universal reign is for the redemption of the whole enslaved creation and all its inhabitants. But Jesus is not just another prophet making broad announcements in the city gate. He is not just another mouthpiece conveying God's ideas and ideals to God's people. Jesus is the cosmic made specific, if you will. Jesus is the entering of God into the grief of promises yet unfulfilled. Jesus is God grieving the loss of a child. Jesus is God without a home, suffering the loss of place and privilege. Jesus is God not a citizen, God without a family, God despised and forsaken, God suffering the boot of empire. Jesus is God in exile, God rendered powerless. In Jesus, God is carried away to Babylon in chains, stripped of dignity, left alone with nothing more than a promise of faithfulness for food. And so we arrive at the deep faith claim of the gospel, the part that's hardest to believe, the part that asks the most of us. That is, that God's promise of a beautiful future at home and at rest does not erase the memory of suffering, but honors that suffering somehow. That what we have endured, we have not endured in vain. That God's own self has entered into the sorrow with us, has endured the pain we have survived, and travels with us through the wilderness to the land of light and love, of justice and equity, of abundance and mercy. That the promise is not only for us and our ancestors and our descendants, but also for God's own self who waits with us through long lifetimes of faithful anticipation. The news is still bad, I'm saying. And it may be for a long time to come. But the promise, the promise is still ours after all this time. The one who made it is faithful and has loved us with an everlasting love. Thanks be to God. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. 
and we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, we'll continually send you thanks. Peace.